Would you pray with me one more time before we dive into God's Word this morning? Let's pray. Father, we want to humble ourselves one more time as we sit before your Word. I want to confess um, in the presence of your people and all those who are with us today that I need you right now in this moment. Um, we need you. We pray that um, that your Word would run and have free course in this place and be glorified in our hearts by uh, by imparting the faith and the and the hope and the trust um, that this passage would call for as our as disciples of Jesus and Father, we just we just ask you now to be with us, to be with me, to help us in this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Well, have you ever been betrayed? I suppose you just have to live long enough, and it'll happen sooner or later. Oscar Wilde, in a typical pessimistic way, said that a true friend stabs you in the front. Some of y'all need to think about that one, maybe. But how would you respond if a friend betrayed you deeply? A newspaper article in 2003 reported how one woman responded. Her name was Rena Salmon, and she was, in 1980, she met her husband, Paul, when they were both in the Army together. They married five years later in 1985. Rena and Paul became pregnant, well, Rena became pregnant, with the couple's first child in 1989. So Salmon left the Army and focused on being a full-time mom. Her son was born and a daughter later followed in 1992. The couple prospered. They lived on a large income in a large home with their son and their daughter. The picture of a happy family. They even had a holiday getaway home in addition to their large estate. But by the mid-1990s, Salmon began suffering from depression. Her weight increased. She took to binge eating and the couple's intimacy deteriorated. Salmon recovered, though, and began to immerse herself in the parent-teacher association of which her children were a part of the school. It was then that she met a man by the name of Keith Rodriguez and his wife, Lorna, and their two daughters at a primary school opening day. So Paul and Rena and Keith and Lorna were both happy couples with happy families, and they began socializing regularly, holding barbecues at each other's homes. By that fall, however, Rena Salmon's husband, Paul, was committing adultery with Lorna. Rena later found out and became absolutely hysterical. Her sense of betrayal was all-consuming. An article in the Telegraph newspaper in 2003 reports what eventually happened, and I'll quote the article. Salmon again descended into depression, twice attempting to kill herself with overdoses of painkillers and alcohol. Then she turned to violence, attacking Lorna in her home, ripping her clothes, pulling her hair, and scratching obscenities on her car. In a final attempt to win her husband back, Salmon threatened to kill herself and her children by lacing their bedtime hot chocolate with morphine. On September 10th, she took a shotgun and strolled into a salon. Inside, she found Lorna Stewart. 
So you've come to shoot me? Miss Stewart asked calmly. Yes, came the equally calm reply. And after a brief exchange, she pulled the trigger and killed Lorna. Salmon lit a cigarette, sent a series of text messages to her husband informing him of what she had done before calling the police. As she was placed under arrest, she told police, quote, I just wanted to hurt her like she's hurt us. Rena, Sam Rena Salmon had her revenge. But when this woman was deeply betrayed by a close friend, she responded by killing the betrayer. However, in our text this morning, Jesus Christ is deeply betrayed by his close friends, and he responds not by killing them, but by continuing on the path to be killed for them. If you're a visitor here this morning, we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we found ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 14. Last week, Jonathan showed us the plot of Judas to betray Jesus. At the beginning of this chapter, Mark begins to describe the events that are going to be leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. And in the face of great betrayal and great injustice, Jesus still freely offers his life as a sacrifice for many. This morning, I want us to notice two main themes as we make our way through this part of the narrative. I want you to notice the unfaithfulness of the disciples and the faithfulness of Jesus. In the midst of great, great unfaithfulness on the part of the disciples, Jesus remains a faithful high priest, a faithful Savior. And in the midst of our own unfaithfulness, Jesus remains faithful to us. So first of all, I want to walk through the text with you this morning. We kind of have three scenes from verse 26 through 52. And I want us to notice, first of all, the unfaithfulness of the disciples. We're going to spend some time talking about that. And then my second point is we're going to make our way back through the scene and notice the faithfulness of the Savior. So the unfaithfulness of the disciples and the faithfulness of the Savior. First of all, the unfaithfulness of the disciples. Notice with me verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, this is right after the Lord's Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Now, he had already told them that one of them would fall away, right? We remember from last week when Jonathan was preaching on this text. Back up at verse 20, Jesus says, It's one of the twelve. One of you who's dipping bread into the dish with me that is going to betray me. He said in verse 18, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So they already knew that someone was going to defect from the group. Someone was going to betray him. But Jesus expands that out now and says, Not, will, not just will one person betray me, but in fact, all of you are going to fall away at some level. You're not all going to be the kind of betrayer that Judas ends up being, but you are going to betray me in some way. You are going to abandon me. You are going to not hold to me. You're going to fall away. Now, it's interesting that Jesus predicts that they're going to fall away based on a prophecy of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 13 because he quotes Zechariah when he says, for it's written. Here's the reason you're going to fall away because it's been written back in the Old Testament that this would happen. And then he quotes a Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
The Greek word translated here, by the way, fall away, you will all fall away, carries a passive sense. It's a passive idea. In other words, it's not like an active, intentional departing from Jesus. It's circumstantial. Commentator James Edwards says the following, It does not mean the disciples will willfully defect, but that external factors are going to act upon them and cause them to do so. In other words, it's a lapse rather than an outright rebellion. And that's what we're going to see that fulfilled in the coming weeks. But the stumbling is very serious, no doubt, but it's not terminal. But notice here that Jesus predicts, based on, the, based on the prophecy from Zechariah, that the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered. And he's saying, you're going to scatter from me. Your sheep, you're part of my fold, and you're going to be scattered. You're going to run away. Verse 28, he reassures them, though, that he will go before them after he rises from the dead and appear in Galilee to them. But notice Peter's confident response in verse 29. Always the consummate, strong guy. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Sometimes you wonder, is Peter even listening to Jesus? <laughs> I mean, he's, Jesus just quoted the Bible to you, Peter. He just quoted God's authoritative revelation in the Old Testament concerning you. And Peter's like, listen, I know God said it, but I'm not going to fall away. <laughs> I know God predicted that I would fall away, but I'm not going to fall away. Peter is not listening to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Note the contrast, this strong confidence. I will not fall away. Even if all these guys jump ship, I'm staying on board. If all these guys leave you, I'm going to stay with you. And he says, listen, before this night's over, you're going to be the worst of all of them. You're going to deny me to the face of somebody. You're going to say you don't even know me, and you're going to do it three times before tomorrow. But notice Peter's response. He says emphatically, Jesus, of course you don't understand me still. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They're all saying, yeah, yeah, we agree. We're gonna, we'll die with you before we deny you. Now, whenever Jesus predicts his passion in Mark, whenever he predicts his suffering in Mark, the disciples always respond with self-assertion and conceit rather than humility. We see this over and over again in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10. Jesus gives them a prediction that something's going to happen, and they are strong and resistant and say it's never going to happen to us. Now, I want you to admire, though, Peter's honest determination to be with Jesus. All of the disciples, despite their profound ignorance of their own waywardness and their profound lack of knowledge of their own weakness, nevertheless, they are resolved to stay with Jesus. They don't want to deny him. They want to die for him rather than deny him. And that's commendable. But what they're not, what's not to be commended is their outright overconfidence and arrogance in the face of what Jesus has just told them. See, Peter's overconfidence that he won't fall away is the first sign that he will. His outright confidence that this will never happen to me is the surest sign that he will fall. 
We know the proverb, pride comes before a fall. And this is a dramatic expression of Peter's pride. What Jesus now predicts for Peter is worse even than stumbling and desertion. Like in verse 27, you notice he said the sheep will be scattered. But what Peter's predicting, this word deny, is actually stronger than the word for fall away and be scattered. Here's what R.T. France says. A threefold denial is not simply a momentary succumbing to pressure, but it's deliberate disassociation. This is not merely desertion. This is denial. So what Jesus has been fact predicting is something even stronger for this particular disciple than what all the other disciples are going to experience. Notice the unfaithfulness of the disciples even right here. They don't respond with humility before Jesus' uh, Jesus' words. What they should say is, Jesus, how could this be? Please, could, it, could, could there be any way that we could stay near you? Is there any way that we have to just be... Can't, why do you say this? They don't respond that way. That would be a humble response. They respond proudly and self-confidently, and such is the first mark of their unfaithfulness. But notice the second scene in the Garden of Gethsemane as we approach really holy ground. And they went to a place, verse 32, called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Skip down to verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. What do we see here? Now, keep in mind, this is not days in between these two scenes. This is moments. This is moments. They are at the Mount of Olives. They are getting ready to go to Gethsemane, which is very close. And... On the heels of this confident assertion by Jesus and the other disciples that they're going to die before they deny him, they go fall asleep in a garden. Now, they did have a big meal. Didn't they? Passover meal is huge. It's a very big feast. And they'd been drinking wine, and they were probably a little bit relaxed, and it was late. It was late at night. And Jesus recognizes that. He says the flesh is weak. He recognizes that with them. But... Notice the contrast between this strong assertion that we're going to die before we deny you and they're sleeping when he asks them to pray for one hour. Notice that he calls Peter Simon in verse 37. He came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Simon, you're not the rock. You're not. He calls him Simon. He doesn't refer to him as Peter. Look at you. Look at you. Pitiful. Weak. And the, the, it's almost humorous in the midst of this great, great, great distress of soul and trouble that Jesus is experiencing. These disciples are falling asleep. And isn't that the way with us? We come out of the Lord's Supper, have a great time around the Lord's Supper, 
share, encourage one another, we're falling asleep the next day. We're not watching and praying. We're unfaithful. We're struggling with our obedience. We're not watching and praying. We're entering into temptation. We know ourselves that the Spirit indeed is willing. We have a great desire to obey, but our remaining corruption in our own human weakness inhibits that that obedience. But notice that the main charge from Jesus to his disciples here is what? Stay awake. Watch with me. Pray. He said that to them back in chapter 13. Remember, the whole point of chapter 13, his big discussion was, stay awake, stay awake. And they are already failing to do that. This is a word of encouragement to to you all. When Jesus preaches sermons, his own disciples forget them. So pastors shouldn't have a too high view of what they preach (laughs) and thinking that no one's going to... I mean, Jesus Christ preached a gripping sermon in Mark chapter 13 about the end of the age and the destruction of Jerusalem and warns them to stay awake. They heard all that. And then in his moment... I mean, they had to discern in Jesus a marked difference from the Passover meal to entering into Gethsemane. Something's changed. And nevertheless, their own weakness is keeping them um, sleeping. Here we observe the kind of sinning of which most of us are guilty most of the time, is it not? Unintentional sinning. Sins of weakness and irresoluteness rather than sins of intention. They didn't go into the garden saying, can't wait till I get a nap. About time. They just weren't as resolute as they said they were. They were overconfident. They weren't looking to Jesus to be their strength and help. They were looking to their own resources, and we see where that got them. We don't plan on sinning, but neither do we strive to avoid it as we ought or seek help from the one who can actually provide us with help, namely Jesus himself. And then notice the consummation of this unfaithfulness in verse 43 as Judas shows up. Judas shows up in verse 43. He's got a crowd of thugs around him with swords and clubs. He kisses him, showing all the guys who is Jesus because it's dark and they can't, they can't see who he is. They don't have big lamps in the Garden of Gethsemane, no electricity. They laid their hands on him and seized him. And then notice the response in verse 50 after all this had taken, a place, taken place. And they all left him and fled. Now, here's, here's the scene. Judas shows up, kisses him, betrays him. Peter, we know from John's gospel, cut the ear off of one of the soldiers or men who were there. Mark tells us that it was, in verse 47, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That could also be a reference to Peter. It could be a reference to someone else as well. Some commentators are divided on that. But... The point is, is that there's some a little bit of militancy going on here. There's a little bit of violence happening. And what happens is Jesus heals them, heals the, both of these men who had their ears cut off, and these disciples say, whoa, he's not even going to resist arrest. We're out of here. He's not even going to fight for this. He must be not who we thought he was. And they're out of there. We don't know all the thoughts that are going through their minds at that time, but that's got to be a predominant, predominant one. 
he, he's a victim now. He's told us that he's, you know, he's in control of this whole situation. And he, he's, taught, he's taught us that, yeah, he's going to go to the cross, but it's going to because, because he's going to lay his life down. But what they don't understand is that this is him being in control. He is voluntarily surrendering himself to the authorities. But they don't get that. They look at this and say, no way. He's not the Savior that he, he said he was. He's, look, he's not even fighting. And so they all run away. And then in verse 51, we got this very strange thing. we got a naked streaker in the garden. Just a really, it's a really weird... Just trying to drop that in there. Mark just wrote it. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. Now, this guy's probably common poor. He's not, I mean, wearing a linen cloth about your body is not much, as we know. They seize him, and he runs away naked. Well, the point, the point of emphasis here is that all the disciples have, uh, have run away, as well as anybody else who happened to be on the fringes. Now, there's some debate about who this young man is. Some people think it's Mark. It's the writer of the gospel, importing himself into the story and saying, I was there. We, we know, from, for the most part, that Mark got most of his um, information from Peter about Jesus. So the fact that we know anything about this whole account comes from Peter himself, Peter informing Mark. But Mark could have been there in this situation. We don't know for sure. Speculation will lead us nowhere. But if... If we do think it's Mark, it's perfectly, it's perfectly possible, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. But the point is, is that this guy's gone too. He heads out of Dodge the same time the other disciples do. So we see this running right through the passage, don't we? You will all fall away. That's the prediction at the very beginning. Then we see it progressively happening through the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? They fall asleep. Jesus comes over to them, warns them. They fall asleep again. Jesus comes over to them, warns them. They fall asleep again. Jesus says, enough of this. What, good, what, what use is this? Let's go. And then they come. Judas betrays. The whole situation happens, and they book. So we've got the whole thing going on in this situation. They all fall. Jesus predicts at the very beginning, you'll all fall away. At the end, they all do, just like Jesus said. How quickly the noblest convictions, the strongest resolve, can wilt away before a serious threat. Some of us, it doesn't take all that much of a serious threat to get us to defect, to wilt away, to fall away to sin. But it's of no use to protest that we have not, what we have not done and self-righteously to look down on others and condemn them for not doing it. Because you know what? If you were in the same situation, you would have done the same thing. We think about that in relationship to the Garden of Eden, don't we, sometimes? Sometimes we think, if I was Adam, I would have not taken the fruit. Or if I was so-and-so, I would have never done that. We would have. We would have. Here's what one commentator wrote. The question is not what sins we have committed as much as what sins we would commit if we were faced with serious pressure, temptation, opportunity, and threat. Couldn't help but think about that in relationship to what even Pastor Ted said this morning. I mean, if we were put in the same situation, serious threat to your life, serious onslaught, serious persecution, serious pressure, 
serious temptation to give in. We would face many of the same temptations. We would see our own unfaithfulness in ways we would perhaps never dream. You have no idea how unfaithful you could become. No idea how unfaithful I could become. Because the stuff that is in the world that we see in terms of manifest evil is resident right here. Now, its grip in the Christian's life is broken, but its presence is still there. And we need to be aware of it and look at these men with this resolve, committing this unfaithfulness to this Jesus, and they were there with him. They felt his breath. They heard him speak. They felt his touch. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching, and they did this anyway. We can be exactly the same way if we're faced with the same pressure, the same temptations, the same opportunities, and the same threats. But we not only notice the unfaithfulness of the disciples, that's not the main point of this text. If I were to stop there and just said, all right, brothers and sisters, don't betray Jesus. See, don't be like these stupid guys. Be a smart Christian. If I were to stop there... I'd be giving you a stone and not bread. We're not going to stop there because the Bible's not first about us. The Bible wants you to be wowed with Jesus Christ. And I want you to see that in the midst of this backdrop of incredible unfaithfulness, incredible betrayal and desertion, Jesus is more resolved to save them than ever. And I want you to see that and appreciate that this morning. I want you to be wowed by the faithfulness of Christ, the faithfulness of the Savior, point number two. Now let's walk back through the text and just see the faithfulness of Jesus. Verse 27 again, I said to them, you will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now notice that language. I will strike the shepherd. Who's the I? Who's the I? Who's the I going to... I will strike... He quotes this... Prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Well, let's look. Let's look. Hold your finger in Mark chapter 14 and go back with me to the Old Testament. It's right near the end of the Old Testament. To Zechariah chapter 13. If you're using a pew Bible, you're going to find that on page 799. Zechariah 13. And notice, first of all, with me, verse 1. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but I just want you to get a feel for some things. On that day, Zechariah 13, verse 1, On that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So here we go. There's a fountain filled with blood, and it's going to be opened. Zechariah 13, 1. But notice... How, that's going to, how that cleansing and uncleanness, where's that blood going to come from? Where's that fountain that's going to be opened going to come from? Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against my sh- This is God speaking. Okay? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me. This is the eternal Son of God. 
declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. There's the quote. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Then in verse 9. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will, and, and they will say the Lord is my God. Now the ultimate fulfillment of this is found in the way Jesus says it is, which is in his being stricken, his being struck for the sins of his people. Now, this is very clear. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be struck, and it's going to be God who strikes me. And the purpose of God striking me is to open up a fountain for sin and uncleanness so that people can be forgiven of their sins. That's Jeremiah's point, or Zechariah's point, and that's Jesus' interpretation of Zechariah's prophecy. So there's a shepherd who stands next to God who is coming into the world to purify people. And that's what Jesus has been telling why he came into the world the whole time. And he's just quoting this. And in the midst of saying, you're all going to fall away, he says, nevertheless, I'm still going to take God's wrath. I'm still going to be punished. I'm still going to absorb your penalty. I'm still going to open up that fountain even though you want to leave it. I'm still going there. But notice also in verse 28 the promise. After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What a great word. Not only concerning his own resurrection, that this, that this death that I'm about to undergo is not going to be the last word. It's going to be the second to last word. The last word is, I'm coming back. I'll be raised from the dead. And I will go before you to Galilee. Wait a, wait a second. I thought you were all falling away. If Jesus is going to them and going to die for them, they're not leaving him. He's going to go to Galilee and he's going to meet those who are going to abandon him in just a minute. Now think about that. He knew all that. He knew all that in eternity past, but he knew it all right then at that moment too, and he still said, I'm going to the cross and I'll, and I'll meet you in Galilee. To the men who are going to fall asleep on him in the garden. To the men who are going to run away from him at his hour of greatest need. When he needs somebody to be there for him. He's going to go face the court alone. He's going to face Pilate alone. He's going to face the flogging alone. He's going to face the cross alone. And in the midst of all that, nevertheless, he says, I'll see you in Galilee. I'll see you in Galilee. So this falling away is not going to be ultimate. James Edwards again says, The kingdom of God that Jesus brings and embodies cannot be spoiled by human failure. It cannot be spoiled by human failure, and it will not be. Jesus is more determined to keep us than we are to be kept. And did the knowledge that the disciples are going to leave him prevent Jesus from choosing them? No. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Let us take comfort then, brothers, in the thought that the Lord Jesus does not cast off His believing people because of failures and imperfections. He is a merciful and compassionate high priest. It is His glory to pass over the transgressions of His people and to cover their many sins. He knew what they were before conversion, wicked, guilty, and defiled, yet He loved them. He knows what they will be after conversion, weak, erring, and frail, yet He loves them. 
He has undertaken to save them, notwithstanding all their shortcomings, and what He has undertaken, He will perform. Thank you, Mr. Ryle. Jesus is determined to save us at our worst, and He's not surprised when we fail Him, and He still loves us. That's one of the emphases of this text. So notice the faithfulness of Christ there, but notice the faithfulness of Christ as we approach the garden. Verse 32, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. Now that's the only reason we know what he's praying here is because obviously they're listening before they fall asleep. And notice the words here to describe the anguish that Jesus is experiencing at this moment. Verse 33, He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, Peter, James, and John, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, they had never heard such things come out of his mouth, ever. Jesus was always the one that they looked to to be the guy who was in control of things. And he, they look at him right now and they see him in this crucible of weakness, this incredible situation of transparency. He says, guys, you have no idea what I'm going through right now. My soul is so greatly troubled, I want to die right now. You remember Socrates? Perhaps you... I mean, no one who read Plato this week, you know, it's like, it's like you try to think of a... But when I, when I read this, you know, Socrates' death is somewhat famous. He's the Greek philosopher, died in 399 B.C. Famous Greek philosopher. But remember when he was sentenced to death and he was um, getting ready to die, and of course they killed him by drinking poison, hemlock. And here's the account of Socrates and his execution. Listen to this. When Socrates saw the man who was bringing the cup to him, to get, he was getting ready to die, he said, Now, good sir, you understand these things. What must I do? Socrates is asking, What do I got to do with that cup? And the man says, Just drink it and walk around until your legs begin to feel heavy, then just lie down, and it will hit your heart and you'll die. With that, he offered Socrates the cup. Socrates took it, Quite cheerfully, without a tremor, Plato writes, with no change of color or expression. Starts to walk around, my legs start to hurt, sit down, dies. Socrates stares into his cup, drinks it. Jesus stares into his cup and shudders. What's the difference in the two cups? Why does Jesus who has foreseen death, we notice that, we see that right in verse 36. He, he, he prays to God, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Why is he shuddering? Why is he asking to remove the cup? Why does Jesus, who's foreseen death and marched resolutely to Jerusalem to meet it, now begin to backpedal? The answer must be that Jesus is aware of facing something much more than just his own death. C.S. 
See, Socrates, all he had to do when he took that cup was face his own death. Jesus is facing a lot more than his death. A whole lot more. It's one thing, fearful as this will be, to stand before God and answer for your own sins before a holy and almighty God. That's one thing. It's another thing altogether to stand before God and answer for the sins of a multitude that nobody can even number. That's a whole different cup altogether. And it's real clear the cup that Jesus is referring to. There's only there's one main cup, that image of a cup, that drives, the, drives right through the Old Testament, that it's clear in Jesus' mind, and that is the cup of the wrath of God. Over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, he says he's going to make the nations drink the cup of his wrath over and over and over again. And what Jesus sees when he looks into this cup is not his own death. He is, it is weighing on him the amount, uh, the costliness of what this is going to mean for him to drink all of God's wrath for all the sins of all the people who would ever trust in him. That is what is causing his soul to shudder. It is not the cross. It's not the flogging. It's not the whips. It's not the tears. It's not the betrayal. That is not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is Jesus facing the unmitigated, unrestrained wrath of God for sin. That is the main thing. And we see Jesus genuinely struggling here. And you need to hear, you need to see in this struggle, his love for you. You need to see his struggle and see his love for you in the midst of this when he looks at the cup and he thinks about you. And he thinks about the glory of his Father. And he thinks about the right hand of God being exalted to a place of unparalleled preeminence. He says, nevertheless, Father, if this is your path for me, if this is what you want from me, if there is no other way and there isn't, I will drink it. His will to obey the Father is stronger than his desire to serve himself. He contemplates sleeping traitors and still accepts the cup. What love. What love. And then in verse 43, we see his faithfulness all the more demonstrated as if it could get any better than that. He's staying the course still. In verse 41, he goes over to the disciples and says, Are you still sleeping? Take your rest. And taking your rest, listen, it's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going, my betrayers at hand. He says, listen, guys, this is done. Let's go. Let's, let's, let, I'm going to now accomplish this mission. I'm going to finish the work that God is going to give me to do. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas comes, one of the twelve, with a crowd with swords and clubs from chief priests. So that we all know that he went, and for, according to verse 10, Jonathan shared this last week, that Judas plotted all this. He went to the chief priests and the scribes, tried to betray him, got him, and then now he's got him. He, he knew that he had to get him in the dark. He had to get him where there wasn't going to be a big scene. But nevertheless, he brings this entourage like Jesus is some criminal. 
Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, and seize him and lead him away under guard. So when he did, he walks up to him and says, Rabbi! And kisses him. And they laid their hands on Jesus and seized him, and that's when the outbreak happens. No, and they're, they're fighting, and but Jesus says, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? And he says, listen, I have been every day in that temple teaching the very things that you, all, you know this, and nevertheless, now you're coming to me and treating me like a criminal with clubs and swords. He's just, he's just speaking out the irony of this entire situation. And he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And nevertheless, Jesus does not leave. He's betrayed by his close friend, forsaken by all of his followers, prepared to go be abandoned to his father's judgment. And nevertheless, he accepts arrest and he heads to the cross. At that moment, you know, if you were, if it was a normal human being we're talking about here, you'd reach the breaking point. You've just predicted the betrayal of your friends. They mock you by not trusting your word. So that's strike number one. You go into the garden where you meet great distress, and instead of meeting comfort, you meet a bunch of lazy guys that won't even, won't even pray for you and help you. And then you go to pray to your father, and it's just, it just feels like nothing's getting through. I mean, strike three, right? And then you walk out of the garden, one of your best friends comes over, betrays you to get arrested, and then everybody else bails. I mean, at that moment, you grab the sword and say, I'm done with this, and you kill everybody, if you're a human being. <laughs> if you're Rena Salmon, whom I read about at the beginning, right? I mean, it was only adultery, and that, that led to murder. But here you've got spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to your Savior, and what does he do? All the more to the cross, to the cross, to the cross. Well, let me conclude with two words of application for us. Number one, disciples are the same. Disciples are the same. This is not just some historical narrative, right? The same stuff that we see in their hearts is in our hearts. We are frail. We are weak. We're determined to stay the course, but we repeatedly find ourselves getting off the course. We struggle and stammer through our pursuit of Jesus. We sleep when we should be praying. We run in fear when we should stand in faith. We're the same. Disciples are the same. That's the first conclusion. The second conclusion is Jesus is the same. He's not surprised when we fail. He loves us in the midst of our unfaithfulness. He pursues us in the midst of our flight from him. He willingly dies for those he knows will not stand by his side. He goes to the cross alone, dying for those who don't deserve his sacrifice. And he doesn't kill his betrayers. He dies for them. This morning, I invite you to bring your unfaithful life to Jesus Christ. He already knows it. It's not going to catch him by surprise. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't know. Christian and not a Christian. 
Bring your unfaithfulness to a faithful Savior. Tell him all that you are and realize this same Jesus reigns in heaven today just the way he is right here. You think he's going to turn you away? Do you think he's going to turn you away and say, no, no, messed it up too much. No, no. (laughs) These guys messed it up real bad. I mean real bad. Come to him and receive all that he is for you. Find renewed hope and courage here. Find renewed hope in the face of your struggle with sin here. Find renewed hope and confidence. When you sin, it does not catch your Savior by surprise. He's going to treat you the same way that he treated his disciples, with patience and love and forgiveness and mercy. The promise of Hebrews 13, 5 and 8 still stands. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for a faithful Savior. Jesus Christ, our Lord, we thank you for being so, so faithful to unfaithful people. You are beautiful. You are wonderful. There is no one like you. We can't possibly read this passage and think, he's just a man. He's just a man. You are very God of very God. And you are very man of very man. You are fully God and fully man. And you came to accomplish a work that 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 we desperately needed, that you voluntarily agreed to take. You looked out upon a mass of unredeemed people, a world full of evil and corruption due to the heart and sinfulness of human beings. And you said, I will enter that world. I will live in a body. I will become a man, fully man. I will live a perfect life. I will lay it down. I will bear their curse. I will bear their judgment. I will rise again, and I will offer that to all who will hear it and receive it. Thank you so much for being such a faithful, faithful, compassionate, merciful Savior. We look at this passage, Lord Jesus, this morning, and we find hope for ourselves. We draw comfort up from this text for our own lives. And we thank you that you put this in Scripture, you put this in in the record of your life, so that when we read this, when we think about this, we will be encouraged that, that you are for us, that you are with us, that you will keep us. So thank you for your faithfulness. And please forgive us. Forgive us again this morning for all of our unfaithfulness. And we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Thank you for being such a faithful Savior. We pray these things in your name. Amen.